All right. Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 8. It's good to have all of you. Hag Sameach, Hanukkah Sameach. And as always, we're going to begin uh, with some deeper words to open your minds and open your hearts in a specific way to orient ourselves uh, to the way that we want to be and want to speak. Uh, if, if you want, you could open your wallet. I do accept donations. Just don't tell anybody. Um, okay, so this is a quote from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Really just, I can't say enough about this guy. He, he died a few years ago. He was a 95-year-old Vietnamese guru. Uh, and he did so much for his people. And after they were exiled, just so inspiring the life that he led after being exiled from his home. And I'm going to bring you a couple of quotes from him um, and how to understand how a person does this and how a person leads a life that's so amazing and, you know, in line with uh, really just being and, and being at peace. Uh, he marched alongside MLK uh, before during the civil rights movements Um he, you know, got Israelis and Palestinians together to try to make peace, you know, uh, Americans and Russians. He did a million meditation retreats, you know, was very close politically with like Robert Kennedy and all these different political leaders. Just an amazing person. So he has a, a, a book, two books of his that I'm reading right now. One of them I'm listening to on Audible in the car. One of them I read. Uh, so the one that I'm listening to is called Being Peace. Uh, and he has this poem in the very beginning of it. So he says, if we are peaceful, peaceful, if we are happy, we can blossom like a flower. And everyone in our family, our entire society will benefit from our peace. So it's such a simple concept, but it's something that we don't really take to heart, I think, a lot of the time, because we're constantly trying to better the world. But as he says in his book, peace begins with me. That's really where it begins. If you want peace in the world, it has to begin within yourself. And then you could also do the next part, which is, and I begin with peace. It's, it's a, it's a two-way street where I'm starting with peace, but also peace in general begins with me. Um, so now I'm, the, the second book of his that I'm reading um, is this book called The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion. One of my co-residents recommended it to me. Um, and it's, I have to say, it has within it such deep concepts and such, you know, amazing ideas that I think very much reflect a lot of the Kabbalistic stuff that we're going to discuss as well, um, especially in terms of paradox. And we always talk about how a mystic without a paradox is like a lover without his beloved. Uh, so I want to bring you just an excerpt of a conversation between the Buddha and his student. And why am I doing this? Why am I bringing this up? Because I think that it has tremendous implications for the way that we understand each of our own enlightenment journeys. So listen up. So this is the question that, that the Buddhist student is asking him. World honored one, if sons and daughters of good families want to give rise to the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind, what should they rely on? And what should they do to master their thinking? So he's saying, how do we awaken our minds? How do we awaken our consciousness? The Buddha said to Subhuti, this is how the bodhisattva, mahasattvas mastered their thinking. So that means this is how, what's a bodhisattva? A bodhisattva is a person who is uh, a, a Buddha, an awakened being, who also makes it his business or her business to be involved in the world, to be involved in, in a way where you want to make a difference in the world and you want to help people, but you're going to, through your own peace, viruhim abayim, through your own peace, you're able to bring about the peace of others. So he says, and now this is, uh, this is really, I think, the, the highlight for me of this quote. However many species of living beings there are, whether born from eggs, from the womb, from moisture, or spontaneously, whether they have form or do not have form, whether they have perceptions or do not have perceptions, or whether it cannot be said of them that they have perceptions or that they do not have perceptions. Wow, Baruch Abba. We must lead all these beings to the ultimate nirvana so that they can be liberated. So what this is saying is that there's, we, in other words, we inter-are. It's this idea of interbeing. So Rabbi Hidari in his class just now was talking about a piece of Gemara that when you look at it in isolation, you kind of are wondering, what does this mean? 
But when you look at it in the context in which it's being said, it starts to really make sense. And you say to yourself, wow, now I think I'm, I'm really understanding what the Gemara is saying. And the truth is everything in our universe and our experience is very much like this. Whenever we have a question about God's justice, or we have a question about how does something make sense in my life, or why am I experiencing this, or why is this person doing something that seems evil? The moment you start thinking about interbeing, which means the way that everything is connected, this allows you to have a certain level of compassion and understanding. And with that understanding brings a certain level of peace within yourself that allows you, I think, to behave in a way that's going to bring more balance and more peace and more goodness to the world. And the way that the Mikubalim would say, talk about that is, they would say to return those sparks back to their creator, we need to be able to see everything being connected. We need to be able to see the universe as a functioning whole, rather than using our mind to cut reality into bits and pieces that don't make sense on their own. Does that make sense? So the, the inspiring thing for me here is that he's saying over here, in order for you to be able to feel at peace, in order for you to be able to achieve a state of enlightenment, you need to not think of yourself as separate from everyone else. So you might think, oh, if I isolate from the rest of society and, you know, the world is burning, you know, and everything is, you know, going down the tubes. But if I isolate myself on some mountaintop and I give myself some peace, then everything's fine. Then I will have will eventually achieve enlightenment. This is saying, no, that's that's impossible. The only way. So what is he saying? It has to be you need to lead all beings to this ultimate level of enlightenment. So we'll finish the quote. And when this innumerable, immeasurable, infinite number of beings has become liberated, we do not in truth think that a single being has been liberated. Why is this so? If a bodhisattva holds on to the idea that itself, a person, a living being, or a lifespan exists, that person is not an authentic bodhisattva. So what does this mean? To me, this is trying to say, if you're caught up in your separateness as an individual, if you're caught up in your separateness as a lifespan, what that's going to produce is an ego, an ego that's going to allow itself to run away, an ego that's going to allow itself to isolate from everyone else and everything else in this universe. But to really feel obligated and to really feel this ability to, to actually help and actually make the world a better place, you need to be able to see yourself in the context and fundamentally connected with everything else. And then once you achieve that state of everything being connected, you're going to be able to realize, oh, all along, I wasn't separate. I thought I was kind of getting away like a night in the uh, abandoned in the night. But really, all along, I, I was this universe. But I convinced myself I was hiding as this separate self. So the, the Kabbalistic idea is this idea of tzimtzum, the famous question always that we keep coming back to week after week is how could it be that there's an infinite God who in a way is transcending space and time, knows everything that I'm going to choose, and yet there's little old me. There's my finite self, my finite soul. And nobody could really ever answer this question. And the only thing that we can say is if you try to run away from your connectedness to everything, including the suffering of the world, including the evils of the world, it's never going to lead you towards that place of, of greater enlightenment. But when you start to say to yourself, no, it's all connected in a fundamental sense, that allows you to stop running away from the totality of your being, and it allows you to lead yourself and the world back towards a place of peace and balance. Yes. Um, so it sounds, again, I think I feel like we, we've said this before, but still, it sounds like it's saying, okay, if you go in a cave, and, and try to find enlightenment, you're not really helping um, anybody because you're investing in your own ego and et cetera, et cetera. But I think that we find many times some of the greatest Medi'im become the greatest because of their hitbo they do, mm. because of their isolation. It seems like you can make better uh, significant process while you're on your own, as opposed to being with other people, the dynamic can make things more complicated. 
Um, maybe when you're alone, you're alone only you and Hashem. So mm. when you're with people, you can get distracted. Um, and also um, by, okay, let's say you do go uh, to the cave and enlighten yourself and you come back, then, for example, the path that you're wa walking on becomes now holy or more mm. meaningful because uh, you carry that connection with Hashem with you. So like, in a way, by enlightening yourself maybe on your own, on your own you can still give to the community mm -hmm. just um, by your being, and there is no ego in so the, this is this is a fantastic question. So obviously we know the famous Gemara of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, right? And him and his son going into the cave for a certain amount of years, and they bury themselves in the sand, and they eat from the carob tree, and they drink from the water, and eventually the Gemara seems to be making a very strong statement about this because when they get out of the cave, what happens? They go and they see uh, a farmer not doing a certain halacha correctly. Right. He's farming, and then Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai looks at him almost with like laser beam vision, and the guy spontaneously combusts, and he, he makes the guy burn up. And I think the Gemara is making a very strong point against long, long periods of isolation. So the way that I, I conceive of this is that to be a, a member of Am Yisrael, to be a member of the world in general, means that you're willing to stake your fate with everyone else's. So we always talk about Sadiqim uh, betochair. When in Parashat Noah, uh, oh, sorry, in Parashat Vayerazet, uh, Hashem was trying to say, uh, how many Sadiqim how many could there be in Saddam? How many righteous people? And it doesn't just say Sadiqim, it says Sadiqim betochair. Righteous people within the midst of the city, which means that the, the real type of righteous person that we're looking for is a person who's fundamentally involved in the world, not somebody who's running away. So we quoted a couple of weeks ago, one of these Hasideh Ashkenaz who was like so extreme and he was only able to, to, to love God in the generalities. He was only able to love God by sitting and meditating or sitting and praying. But he says, a person who is on my level doesn't go and spend time with his wife and play with his kids and get lost in these you know, these secondary things of life. But clearly, that is missing a whole beautiful part of the picture. And we mentioned that I think that Parashat Yitro is constructed the way it is because it's trying to tell you about the balance of the general and the particular. So before we get to the giving of the Torah, which is this tremendously general uh, knowledge of God, and it's a, it's a cosmic thing that's going to go on. We have to hear about the particulars of Moshe's family and Yitro and his father-in-law and, and his kids and Moshe sending his wife away. Because before you go into the details and the nitty-gritty of the generalities, which hopefully one day you will get to experience God on a cosmic level, you have to be able to love the particulars of your life. You have to be able to love God through loving all the particulars of your life if that makes sense. So your question is, you know, how can I balance maybe the, the need to be and separate and having my own time to myself? And at the same time, how can I balance that also with the need to really be integrated in society and helping people? So I think it's, it's a balance that each of us needs. And it's okay to take time away as long as the goal is not just for your own sake. So I think Rabbi Solomon Di Sassoon, I think Rabbi Shama quotes it in, in Parashat Korah in his book, that the pro welcome ID, uh, that the problem with, with uh, a person who is, uh, you know, seeking enlightenment alone on a mountaintop is what? It's very obvious. This is all about his own ego. He's really doing it for himself. But a person who is fundamentally involved in the world and is a Sadiq Betochair, that's a person who really is enlightened because they're not doing it for themselves. They're not even thinking of themselves. It's like when a right hand helps the left hand, that's the mystical view. I think you quoted Levinas to me once when you're able to look into the eyes of another person and you see the infinite self in that other person, you say to yourself, well, me helping them is not me doing a good deed for them. It's the equivalent of if my left hand got slashed, my right hand starts patching it up. And obviously, you have to balance this with, with proper boundaries in your life. I'm not saying to abandon all boundaries. But I'm saying when you get to a certain level, you're able to see yourself not as an ego functioning to help other egos, 
but as a vessel of the divine, helping other divine beings in whatever capacity that you can. And I think that's a, a much more elevated state than constantly needing to be on my own journey and my own enlightenment you know, all the time. That makes sense. Yeah. Do, do we need the Kabbalists for these ideas? Mm. If we study just Rambam, mm -hmm. the so-called rationalist. Yeah. So he says uh, you should. It's a mitzvah to love and fear God. Right. It's the first commandment. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you do that? He says, well. Go and study the science, creation. Look up at the stars. Mm -hmm. You're going to see how amazing it is. And you're going to come to love the creator. Yeah. Right? Look how beautiful thing is. You're going to just feel this intense love. And then when you feel that, you realize, wow, look, the universe is so big and I'm so small. I feel mm -hmm. awe. Yeah. All right. So it's a, it's a well, it comes from, uh, starts with rational, mm -hmm. but then you end up with this uh, emotional, like, a spiritual state absolutely i and, yeah. and eventually then it says you come to know god and know that god is merciful and compassionate mm -hmm. and then you have compassion on other people i think um, it's so incredible. i'm wondering if we can just get all this from yeah. and we don't have to <laughs> you know, they'll become exactly so i'll tell you why i'll tell you I'll let mickey speak i'll tell you why i think it's so necessary and that Harambam didn't live in in the time uh, uh, that we're living in where, with, where it has so many more challenges of reductionism, where in Harambam's time, it made sense to say, because uh, wherever there's order in the world, I can therefore infer a creator or an orderer. But the problem is, he, he wasn't living in a post-Darwinian age, I think, where now it's so easy for everyone to write off everything that exists as it's only just this even all the beauty and all the meaning that you think you can see from all the, the beautiful cosmic stuff, even with astronomy and all this expansive stuff, really, oh, it's all just molecules and nothing more. But I think the problem is that, that we, if, if you want to take the Maimonidean view today, it, it easily leads you towards reductionism and nothing more, rather than like it used to in the ancient times, where it would lead you towards a knowledge of the creator. That's what I think personally is the problem because the conclusion that's drawn from Harambam's preliminary ideas is no longer, oh, there is a creator. It's now used to fuel this argument of atheism. But so last year, my whole class that I tried to dedicate it towards was this idea of, all right, now why am I veering away from just pure rationalism? Is because as a human being, we, we're not just rational creatures. We, rationalism is a very good part of what we are, and it's a very important part of who we are. But at the same time, the rider evolved to serve the elephant, as is said. So the rider could be thought of as like this rational faculty on the outside of our brain, and the elephant is like the reptile brain that's inside. So really, the, 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 the intellect is, this, is there. It evolved only to serve the passions. So the intellect that I have and this rational mind that I have is really only there secondarily to this other thing that I totally don't understand, which is non-rational. I wouldn't say it's irrational, it's non-rational. And there's something about reality itself that's not, that cannot be cut with the rational mind and can only be experienced through pure, you know, unadulterated consciousness of what it is. And the mystical experience is something that whoever you read is talking about it says, this was the first time that I felt like I could transcend just my limited knowledge as, as a human being and be able to connect with reality as such. And that's why I personally think that it's, it's, it, you would be doing yourself a disservice today if you only went based on, you know, just, uh, what they would call normal mysticism or just uh, rationalism as such, because I think we need as human beings, a deeper meditative way of looking at the world that no longer separates subject and object, me as the observer and that which is observed. Because even Harambam doesn't really ask that. He doesn't really start with the first, first, first question, which is who is it that's doing the knowing? He starts with prime cause. But he doesn't ask the question of who's doing the questioning. 
I think he does, because Rambam defines God as the knower and the known. Ah, uh, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, is all one. Yes. And when you know something, you actually connect to God. And this is a very mystical thing that you just said. That's the most mystical thing in the world. But Rambam says yeah. it already and says, what is uh, what is afterlife? Yes, it's it's the more you connect to God, and God is everlasting. So when you have greater knowledge, connect to God. Mm -hmm. Only that aspect of you mm -hmm. is what lives on. Got it. But so now the problem is the same one we began the class with, where if you start saying God is the knower, the knowledge, and the known itself, then now we're left with this question of where is me? Where am I? If if God is so infinite that He includes all this stuff. So the, the analogy that my rabbi in Israel gives is to that whole idea that I think Ibn Ezra even said before, Hanabam, God is the knower, the, the known, and the knowledge itself. My rabbi says, God is the dream, God is the dreamer, and that God is that which is dreamt. So we are all a dream in the mind of God, he says. It's, it's as though, God, and this is a very pertinent, powerful, panentheistic, more mystical way, and it's going a step further than Hanabam would go, I think. In allowing me to a little bit conceive of what the heck am I in relation to all this God stuff. And it's like if you were God and you could dream any dream in any given night, you would probably spend eons and eons dreaming of amazing things and all these fantastical things. But then at a certain point, it would be boring and you would probably press a button called surprise. And in one of those infinite, infinite, you know, dreams that you would have, you would dream exactly where you are right now. And that's where we are right now. Welcome to this class. You know, so, so that's what that's that's for me the reason why why it doesn't cut it because I agree with you and Hanan Bam very much points out these contradictions, but it's all right. But I need more. Give me more. Like so now, what do I do? I don't know. If, I want to hear if you have any rebuttals or any responses to that. That the best way to connect is through meditation. I love. I agree. I agree. And and every class I, I have about this, I always start with the question of like, if that's the truth, or they say in the East, um, he who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say. Sister, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing here? Why am I here to say all these words to you guys? He who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say. I should have nothing to say. Well, that's 100% true. And yet the person who said that wrote the entire Tao Te Ching. Because even though that's true, there's something fun in the experience itself of just talking about this stuff. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also know at the back of our minds all these words, haki balash, talk is cheap. Don't take anything I say seriously. But so instead of treating it like I'm giving you the moon itself, this is merely like a finger pointing at the moon. It's just simply is something that's pointing you in a certain direction for when you're silent with yourself. That's what I would say. It's like any, it's like a teaching, but it's not, we're not actually stating reality as it is. So I, I totally agree with that. Mike, Mike. Yes. I just quite, could you define, you said reductionism. What is that, Mike? So reductionism is the idea that reality is only just X. So the, the today's scientists will say reality is only just particles or only just made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And because we could cut it down to these things, we could see the building blocks of reality. There's no emergent meaning. Baruch Abba. There's no higher level meaning to reality because all I really know of is this stuff. And what you think is a higher level of meaning is really just a dancing of these particles. So we always talk about paradox, and I don't think that's wrong. I think that's 100% true, but at the same time, it's also 100% false where the, the paradox is. At the same time, there's also these higher level emergent meanings going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Of course, no problem. So so uh, any yeah, you had something to say, Mick? Are you good? Okay. All right. If anybody has any questions or comments, otherwise we could continue. Yes. What about Hashkaka practice and gratitude? Isn't that a way to connect to Hashem and see his hand on poor little me? 
I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think, you know, just building off of the idea of a paradox, like you said, Bela. So on the one hand, it's extremely beneficial to see God's hand in the life of my ego at all times. So I actually, you know, let me, let me read it to you. I have this amazing quote. Um, I looked up today because I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, psychiatry residency. And I'm very curious about this question. It occurred to me that I had a light day. I said, what's the difference between the mystical experience and psychosis? So I found a whole paper that talks about different research that was done on the differences between how does a, a person that's psychotic relate to whatever experience they're having versus a person that's experiencing a mystical experience. How do they experience this overwhelming experience? And one of the quotes that really got me was one of these quotes from a psychologist who used to be schizophrenic, who used to be psychotic. And he explains his, the, his own dichotomous feelings regarding both experiences he's had, that he's had of psychosis and, on the other hand, the mystical experience. So this is really interesting. So listen up. In this state of mind, he says, what previously had been mystical thoughts such as all is meaning, now became psychotic thoughts, such as everything means something, even street signs, advertisements, etc. So you see what he's doing. He's transforming it from the generality of like life is meaningful in general to every particular of my life is there to nudge me in some way. And that's what we call in psychosis, self-referential thinking, where you think that because I sneezed, it has something to do with you in some way. But that's very egocentric. So you see the, the, the problem here is that if everything is to that extreme, you go psychotic. Now I'll finish the quote. What previously had been the cosmos is an interconnected unity now became everyone and everything is against me. And it's so powerful because you start to see where people really can lose their minds if they go too far in one direction. That's why I'm, I'm always trying to speak in, through both sides of my mouth in this class. And it might be frustrating for some of you guys, but I always talk about paradox. And I'm always talking about a tightrope that we have to walk, that we're balancing these two ideas. But we know from the Gemara, the Bitarfon, in one pocket, it said, for me, the world was created. In the other pocket, and I am but dust and ashes. And unless you're able to hold those two thoughts in equal balance at all times, you are going to be unbalanced, either in the direction of psychosis. And I'm not saying you're going to be full on psychotic, but you might be, you know, leading towards that kind of paranoia or that kind of thinking. And in the other direction, meaninglessness. And who wants to be either feeling like everything is meaningless or being led towards psychosis. I think if we find the balance, we realize, oh, I don't have to go in either extreme. I can find a way to navigate my life through mindfulness, where on the one hand, yes, Hashem is there nudging me towards my self-actualized self. And at the very same time, these are empty phenomena rolling on. And they have no deeper meaning. And that's the biggest relief to a psychotic person. So people who are in a mystical state, they'll tell you, while I'm getting paranoid, I'm getting scared. What if this happened because of this? What if that happened because of that? And then once they hit that level of, quote unquote, everything is actually meaningless in a musical sense, it was nirvana, which means phew. It means the breath out. It means, wow, I, I'm relieved to find out that there wasn't something I had to become. It was just this. That's a relief. Other people will mourn that and say, no, I needed something more. I needed a deeper meaning. And you look at them, you say, isn't this enough? It, isn't this right now enough? And you ask yourself that question in any given moment. Ask yourself, what am I really looking for? So we'll just read a little bit more about this stuff um, before we jump into the Kabbalah. Um, in, in this Diamond Sutra that we were quoting earlier of like, you know, so so once you become enlightened, you know, and you, you, you start to realize, oh, I have this obligation towards every other living and non-living thing in the universe to bring it, them towards enlightenment. Once I achieve the enlightenment, I realize all along these things were not needing in need of enlightenment. 
They were enlightened the whole time. And they weren't separate beings. They were connected with me the whole time. So it's amazing because you read some of the stuff of, uh, about people's mystical experiences. And they say things like, I am the first and I am also the very last being to ever be enlightened. It's this distinct feeling that until I was enlightened, those other beings were all still not enlightened. But once I was enlightened, all other beings were already enlightened. And it's almost like all of reality was waiting for me to become enlightened. And then once I did, I realized I was kind of la both last to the party and also first to the party. I am the alpha and the omega. Don't go too crazy with that. But this is kind of the, the feeling that you get where it's like, I'm not better than or worse than anything else. And I can't turn my back on all of reality because I am that all of reality. So stop trying to run away from what you are. And this is the scary part because it's, I am God. I create the light and the darkness. I create good and evil. And the difficulty we always say is the evil part is how can I own this evil? And once you transcend that, you're there because that's going prior to the Garden of Eden. We always talk about to get back to the Garden of Eden. What was guarding the way for Adam and Eve back to the garden? It says Hashem put over there um, the, the Kerubim. He put the cherubs, these angelic figures. And in their hands are the Lahat, the Haidav Amitapechet. The, the, the flaming sword, the spinning flaming sword, that's guard, to guard the way to the tree of life. What does that mean? Well, it wasn't a problem for Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life earlier on, but only once they ate from Etzadat, after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then it became a problem to eat from the tree of life. What, which means what? Which means you're supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge. Just don't do it if you ate from, sorry, you're supposed to eat from the, the tree of life, but just don't do it if you already ate from the tree of knowledge. Meaning, if you're seeing the world in terms of tovara, good and evil, you no longer are going to be able to eat from the tree of life. But once you let go of your preconceived notions and cutting the world in these arbitrary ways and determining this is good and this is evil, which is never absolutely true, once you let go of that, you can realize that this flaming sword was never actually there as a solid object. So like the propeller of a plane looks like a wall when you just stare at it because of the motion parallax. But then when you realize, oh, no, this whole time, objectively, it was really just one thing that's circling around and around. If I could sneak past it, then I'll be there. Then I'll have transcended the duality. And it's all, it's all about that. It's all about going to the non-dual. Um, okay, so now we could talk a little bit about some Kabbalistic stuff. And if you want, we could, we could return back to some of the meditative stuff. Um, so we left off last time uh, talking about uh, some of the ways to, to relate to a lot of our physical actions um, as being in relation to some kind of cosmic drama that's going on. Um, so listen to this quote from the Lurianic prayer of the Hasidic master Elimelech of Lizinsk. He says, before washing the hands in preparation for eating, recite uh, Rabitz Hakluria's uh, penitential prayer. After eating a piece of bread over, over which the proper blessings have been recited, one should say, for the sake of unification of the Holy One, Tiferet, and his Shekhinah, I do not eat, God forbid, for my bodily pleasure, but only that my body should be strong for God's service. Let not any sin, transgression, evil thought, or physical pleasure prevent the unification of the Holy One by means of the sacred sparks in this food and drink. So this is an extreme mindfulness of while somebody's eating. They set this intention of the marriage of these two sefirot, the male and female, tef'eret and shekhinah, and while you're eating, you imagine that this is going to bring about that unification of the sefirot. As one eats, he should depict to himself the letters of the word food, ma'achal, and should have in mind that numerically they total 91, the numerical value of the tetragrammaton plus Adonai Lord. So if you add up 
the 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 numerical value of yud kevavke 26 and aleph dalad nun yud you get 91 which is ma'achal is this absolute yeah on one sense it could be on the other sense it's a, it's a beautiful way of expressing aleph dalad adonai yud kevavke this you are in this food and I don't want to. I want to sound too, you know, Christian in a sense where it's like eating the body of of Christ, as they say. But this is more saying this physical action is imbued with godliness, no less than any any you know spiritual action, quote unquote, that I think I'm doing. And even the action of eating is knowing God, and that's a beautiful way of living. Um. Any questions or comments about that? Otherwise, we can, we can. So here's a quote from the Baal Shem Tov. You know, going even a step further. If you look at a pretty woman, think of where she gets such beauty. When she dies, surely her, her beauty would vanish. If so, from where does she get beauty? From the divine power that was imminent within her and that provided her the power of beauty. There you will find the root of beauty, which is the divine power. So like we, like we said earlier, to cut reality into a cross-section is not doing it justice. But when you see everything as a manifestation of the Big Bang, leading up to this point right now, which everything is, then you start to realize the interbeing of everything. We inter-are. And when you see a beautiful woman and you stop just leaving it at that, and you say, wow, this is what all of reality conspired to bring about this beautiful creation. My wife, my girlfriend, whoever it is, you can really start to appreciate it on a, on a spiritual level. It is good for me to cling to the source and root of all worlds in which there are all kinds of beauty. In the same manner, when one eats, one should think that the taste and sweetness of a food has emerged from the vitality and sweetness of heaven which is the divine essence. There is also a divine essence in a plant which we see. The plant stands as do other creatures for the divine essence is effused from above everywhere. If you look at things while observing thus in your mind, then your act of looking is surely identical with the worship of the infinite God. So what he's saying is, whatever you're looking at, whatever your eyes are looking at, see it in the context of all of reality that it implies. It's impossible to look at anything in the world without the entire rest of the universe being implied in it. Take this tissue. In this tissue, I don't just see a tissue. I see the trees that brought it about. I see all the waters of the world. I see the sun. I see stardust from in the carbon atoms that make up this tissue. So it's not just the tissue. It's everything implied in that thing. That's a mystical perspective. In all moments, to be able to see reality in that way. Um, and, this, you know, I wrote over here a note to myself, bringing it back to the source, like the mitzvah of lulav, which we said is so beautiful. Because mm -hmm. what's the arba minim? The four species are a fruit, a palm frond, which is a leaf, a branch, it's avot, aravot, and arvenachal, something that grows by the water. So you go from fruit to leaf to branch to water, which is literally bringing the item back to the source. And when I'm shaking it in all directions, I'm showing God, I'm saying all this harvest that I'm getting during this, this holiday of Sukkot is not just the action of my own hands. It's something that implies the whole ecosystem that I know is in your hands. Surely it's not in my hands, Hashem. And I'm shaking it in all directions to thank you, Hashem, for, for bringing this to me. And I'm showing you that I know it's real source. And I bring it all the way back from fruit to, to leaf, to branch, to water. And then it says, You should be happy before God because he's the ultimate source. Yes. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's universal for anything and everything like that. Hmm. I mean, some things are constructed. It's hard to find the uh, universal beauty within that. Something, Agreed. Uh, like an oil stove. Yeah. It's not a natural occurrence. You know, you can't, uh, you can't attach that to yeah. uh, Hashem's uh, creation, really. You know, The question of evil in general. All, all evil. You could ask that same question about, right? 
all evil, whether it's human done or, you know, a tsunami that's beyond humans, you know, it's all, it always gives us this angst of like, how could it be that God brought about or God allowed for, or however you want to put it into words, this, what seems like evil. So I always come back to the story of the farmer, right? You know, the farmer, he's uh, one day, he's a poor guy, Hazid, he only has one horse. The, the horse runs away. All the neighbors come by to commiserate. They say, I'm so sorry. That is not such a shame that you lost your horse. Or, you know, this one. And he, and he said, and, and he says, maybe. And then uh, the, the next day, this, the horse comes back with all these wild stallions and he triples his wealth overnight. And all the, the neighbors come by to say, how amazing that you got so rich. And he says, maybe. And the next day, his son is trying to tame the horses and his son break, falls off and breaks his leg. Say, how terrible is this? He says, maybe. And then the next day, the conscription officers from the army come to draft his son, and they see his son's leg is broken. They can't go to the army. Everyone says, how great is this? He says, maybe. So I'm not saying to say that this evil that I see is good. I'm not saying that. But I am saying to realize that it's temporary and to say it will pass. You know, so there was, there was a famous king who said that he wanted the wisest man in the land to inscribe something on his ring that will hold him in the good times the same way that it'll hold him in the bad times. And the, this wise man wrote three words on the, on the ring. It will pass. It will pass. That allows you to keep your head straight in the good times and in the bad times. And, you know, I struggle with evil just as much as the next guy. You know, I see it every day and I, I deal with it in my own life too. And, you know, it's, it's not something to, you know, I, I wouldn't say accept evil. I would say accept your non-acceptance of evil. Accept the fact that you are judgmental of evil. And don't stop fighting evil. But that doesn't mean that you can't leave room for peace in your own life. That's, that's what I think is, uh, is the point that, that I always have to keep coming back to for my own sanity, you know. Um, so here... From the physical, we can we apprehend the spiritual. From the sensual, we may apprehend the worship of God. That's from a, a mystic named Isaac the Blind. So it's always about this idea of this physical world is like a pathway towards a whole bunch of deeper spiritual hidden you know, realities. And that's why uh, a lot of these Eastern guys will say that this is the world of illusions because it really is more than meets the eye. And when you have a mystical experience and you start to see reality as it really is, you stop seeing it with the lens that you've been seeing it all this, all these years. And the question is, how do I make, make sure not to become psychotic from this and instead to remain level-headed and balanced? And the answer, as we said always, is to maintain that balance between the world is created for me and also I am but dust and ashes. Could you just define what is a mystical experience? Mm. So there's certain qualities. I actually, it's funny. I talked about it last year. William James does a great job and he's like the father of modern psychology. And he talks about different qualities of the mystical experience. Um, and it's this, it's this feeling of expansion and interconnectedness of everything and the whole universe in some way. And the certain qualities that it has are it's something called noetic, which means that it, it, it has this authoritative quality to it, where you look at the guy, you say, listen, you just took psilocybin. You understand that, right? He says, yes. And then you say, and this drug acted in a certain way in the receptors in your brain. He says, okay, yeah. And then, and then, and he's like, yeah, but then I experienced this unbelievable interconnectedness of the universe. And now I, I, I really felt at the time that I understood truth. And you say, but dude, don't you understand that this was chemically induced? And he says, yeah, but that doesn't matter because this is what reality brought to me. And the experience was so secure at the time and so apparent at the time that it doesn't matter what brought it about. It was obvious to me, experientially. That's called noetic. And there's the a few more qualities to it. We could look it up, but he has, you know, that's kind of what mystical really means. Um, 
Here, another quote, taking physical pleasure as an end in itself can mislead us, seduce us, and lead us to sin and self-destruction. Taking it as a means to the divine can lead us to wisdom, to spiritual fulfillment, to God. So this is the difference. We all know people who are, you know, especially I was talking to my attending today about, I feel like I'm living in a society that's sick. Not in a judgmental way that I'm saying that, but we have certain illnesses in society in general. We're so fast-paced. We're so anxious. We're so angry. You know, I'm just driving to work. The amount of honking, the amount of yelling and screaming from different people. This guy double parked. This guy didn't put his blinker on. All these different things are going on. You look at the, the hookup culture. People are download Tinder and they're going for these one night stands and they think this will you know, somehow fill the void of loneliness in their lives or whatever they're turning to. And we live in a society that's really sick because we have a God-shaped hole in our lives, a meaning-shaped hole in our lives. And the point is not to therefore say, let me never have sex or let me never eat food or let me never enjoy the physical pleasures of the world. It's to say, I will do those things in the right way with the right person in the right time, with the right state of mind. And then it, be, it goes from a path towards hell, and you transform that same thing to a path towards heaven. Like they say in Yerushalayim, if you've ever been there, that Geben uh, Hinom, right? Gehinam, Jehannam, right? The hell is in one spot. And it's right next to, or they say mystically in the Gemara, that it's in the exact same spot as the gateway to heaven. And there's a deep mystical meaning to that, that the, the gateway to heaven and the gateway to hell open from the same doors. It's just a matter of the way that you're doing it. So it's not the physicality that's wrong. It's the way that you're doing it. It's the mindset that you're bringing to it. Right. Um, there's also this idea of avodah the worship that is in the physicality. Divine worship through materiality. In Judaism, we're not trying to avoid the physical. We're trying to uplift the physical to the spiritual. Um, and the goal is the divestment of materiality. Yes, yes, I.D. No, so it's funny you say that. Years ago, uh, I, I saw Rabbi Fran in person, and he talked for about an hour about this. And yeah. he said it was really the gosh, he says, don't let the Gashmias take you down. <laughs> I love he, it. He said that, that you have a house, you want another house. You have a car, you want a better car. You want the suit, you want 10 suits. You want Like he went ballistic. And then he said, what are you doing? What are you, <laughs> like, what are you doing? So this, this point is like really, but I liked it. What does it mean stripping away? Go to zero <laughs> over here when he says stripping away of materiality. Mm. So, Again, is that a balance? Is that like, where, where are you holding with that statement? So you, let's see. Uh, so the goal is divestment of material. Sorry, his pashtut. Oh, sorry. Hit pashtut hagashmiyut, which means the stripping away of materiality to reach the spiritual essence veiled by physical appearance. So what, I don't think what that means is to not do physical things. This is a whole new idea, but it's saying... While I'm engaged in that physical action, I can strip away the illusory nature of this physical thing and see through that physical veil to the light of God. So there's a great pasuk in Tehillim that I always love to quote. That's right. We say this every Rosh Chodesh. Hashem, you've done something truly great. What is this thing you've done truly great, says the psalmist? You wear uh, glory and majesty. How so? Hashem, you stretch out the light like it's a cloth, like it's a piece of clothing. And you stretch out the heavens like a curtain. What does that mean? So to me, there's a mystical significance to that, which is that while you're looking at physical reality, you can start seeing 
hidden within it levels of spirituality. So some of these people who have done psychedelics, they'll tell you looking at reality on a psychedelic feels different and looks different. And you start to feel like you're able to peer through the veil. You're able to a little bit strip away some of this stuff. And reality could be seen almost like pixelated in a way. And the soup of pixels starts to look a little bit different and reveal kind of the Wizard of Oz that's, that's behind all of it. And obviously words can't do justice. It's something to experience. But there's always this continued motif that people who experience the, the mystical will come back to, which is something deeper being revealed behind this world of forms. I hope that does justice to your question, ID. Um, no, it's good. It's, yeah. It's, it's good in the sense that I understand the messages that you're getting across, but I'm just saying, how do you really control that, that desire for so much? That's all. Yeah, I think I think the desire is beautiful. And, and uh, you know, I think the point is just keep practicing, keep practicing an extreme mindfulness with whatever physical action you're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a way of every time you sit down, if you take, you know, you say the berachas, take 10 breaths also, take 10 mindfulness breaths before you eat. And you could even say the Leshem Yehud that we were quoting before, which is, I'm doing this, for, if, you're, if you're that kind of minded guy, I'm doing this for the interbeing of two sefirot. Or I'm doing this for the interconnectedness of the world or to bring back the sparks to their creator. Or I'm doing this to be fully present with you, Hashem, right now. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the entire universe that this apple implies. That's a way of really bringing your entire self and bringing the mystical experience to this materiality. But I think also at the same time, it's stripping away a little bit of just the physical to get a little deeper towards the, the more spiritual stuff. Um, so let's see a little bit more expanding on that. However, without the attraction offered by the physical, one would not be led by the sensual to its underlying spiritual essence. Right, So you, you would never want to even engage in the physical action if it didn't have some appeal to it. In this view, the form of the human body, the marvels of nature, taste, smell, the appearance of food, and the pleasures of sexual relations are potential entrees to the spiritual. Which means that just because they're enjoyable doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means that the, Hashem, in a way, wants you to engage in these things. He's pulling you in these directions. But it's a question of how are you going to engage in them when you do engage in them. So beware, I wrote here. Do not confuse the vestments of the spiritual with the spiritual. So just because you're thinking, okay, now I'm, I'm with God because I'm engaged in this physical activity. Don't mistake this as being the absolute end in and of itself. So the obligation is not only to become aware of the spiritual essences of things, but also to liberate the, these sparks. Um, and there's a certain ends that we're trying to achieve through engaging in the physical. So I have a couple of comments here of my own, which is I think it's a little bit dangerous if you take this too far, because you could get neurotic now. You could say, oh, and this could lead you in the same judgmentalism of self as everything else. You could say, now while I'm eating, if I forgot to be mindful, and I forgot to marry the sefirot together, I am no good and I'm a sinner and I'm bad. The point is not to do that. The point is really, and that's why I love a simplistic approach. Totally be present with what is. Taste every taste. Eat your salad. Appreciate all the colors. Appreciate all the flavors of whatever salad you're eating. And that's being with God. Because that's what is right now. It's a simple thing. But that's what it means to be with God. Um, and if you also want to add on, it's your choice what flavor of meditation you want to do that day. So some days I'll do very minimalistic. And I'll say, I'm just going to do mindfulness eating today. Other days I'll say, you know what? I want to inv invite God a little bit more into this experience. Hashem, with this bite, please liberate these sparks. Hashem, with this bite, please, I'm having the intention to unite your presence 
into this world and to, to have this be this point of me eating be the meeting place of the divine with the physical. However you want to clothe your meditation, you can. Um, so just the summary of this, this stuff that we spoke about so far, we have the blessings before eatings, the berachot. Uh, thankful acceptance attitude of normal mysticism. So that's just a normal mystical experience, just saying the berachot, appreciating and thanking God for what we have. Then you have this idea of union of tif'eret and shekhinah, liberation of sparks through the mystical intention during eating, and that represents the theosophical theurgic Kabbalah, trying to effectuate a change in the heavenly realms through my eating. It's a very fair mystical school. It's not the only one, it's one of them. Trying to make a spiritual change in the world through my physical actions. The other one, focusing on the divine letters and combinations as a way of seeing God within the food. That's prophetic Kabbalah. Because we always talk about the different schools of Kabbalah. And all of these are found within the Kabbalistic, specifically Hasidic teachings relating to food and drink. Um, so before we end, we could we could do, uh, you know, go, go back to some of the um, you know, just mindfulness stuff. So we'll close the way we opened with some more Tiknat Han. And I want to read to you just a portion of, of uh, some of the way he speaks. And, and I have to say, you know, a lot of these guys, when you hear their lectures, they don't really sound so mindful. They don't really sound like they're, they're lecturing about very mystical things. And they're lecturing about very deep things. But is it really a meditation? When you listen to Tiknat Han, on YouTube or wherever, you really see his meditative style within the lecturing. It's not just a lecture. It's like a, it's a, it's a guided meditation with himself included in the audience. And he even says this himself. And I highly, you know, I, I would advocate all of you to, to look him up for yourselves and just invite him into some of you, when you're brushing your teeth, listen to some Thich on because it really is very beautiful. I'll read you some of his stuff. So like we said earlier, he was a person that was exiled from, uh, from his country, from Vietnam. Uh, and he says as follows, And I dreamt of going home to my root temple in central Vietnam, climbing a hill, a green hill, beautiful trees. And half the way to the top of the hill, I woke up and I realized that I was in exile. So in the middle of his dream, he wakes up, you know, even though he wanted to get to his desired place. And the same kind of dream repeated again and again. But thanks to that practice, I was able to find my true home in the here and now. And I stopped suffering. And the dream did not come back anymore. So this is the key. Despite never returning to Vietnam in his lifetime, he was able to find his home in the here and now. And he no longer had this dream. Not because he went back, just because he, he meditated his way to the here and now. People think that I suffer when I cannot go back to Vietnam, but that's not the case. The formula, quote, I have arrived, I'm home, is the embodiment, the expression of my practice. It expresses my understanding of the teaching of the Buddha. It is the cream of my practice. I have arrived, I'm home. So it's just that mindset in any given moment. You can always say that to yourself. When you breathe in, you say to yourself, I have arrived. When you breathe out, you say, I'm home. Wherever you are in that given moment. Another one of his is, he says, you know, um, uh, it's this moment, wonderful moment. This moment, wonderful moment. And it's just bringing that intentionality to each moment. He says as follows also, and since the time I found my true home, I did not suffer anymore. The past is no longer a prison for me. The future is no longer a prison for me. I'm able to live in the here and the now. I'm able to touch my true home. And I know that the future is available through the present. This is what I have found. When you touch the present moment deeply, you touch the past. And if you know how to handle the present moment properly, you heal the past. Many think that the past is already gone. You cannot do anything. You cannot go back to the past and fix things and repair things. But according to this teaching of the Buddha, the past is still there with all the pain and the suffering. If you know how to come home to the present moment and touch the present moment deeply, you touch the past and you can heal the past. 
And when you heal yourself, you heal your ancestors, right? Familial trauma. And this is possible. My ancestors has, have suffered in me, he says. I've also suffered. And since I, since I am able to touch the present moment deeply, I heal myself and I heal my ancestors, including my parents, my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, my grandfather, my grandmother. When I practice walking, I generate energy of freedom and solidity. And I feel that all my ancestors enjoy the freedom and the solidity that I generate with the practice of walking. Because to me, my, my ancestors are always alive in me, fully present in me, in every cell of my body. And if I'm free, they're free. If I heal, they heal. When I take a step with solidity and freedom, all of them take the step with me. And you have to take that step with all your being, full awareness, full concentration in order for the step to be a really solid step, to be free. In order for you to be able to touch life, the oneness of life in that moment, that is healing and nourishing. So the act of making a step is an act of freedom, act of liberation. You liberate yourself, you liberate your ancestors. It's an act of revolution. So we'll pause there. But I think you can hear from the way that he speaks. He's not in any rush to get anywhere. He's just speaking out of a piece of being in the now. And he's trying to guide you as a person who's looking to heal your past. A person who's looking to gain something for your future. He's looking to guide you back to the present moment. And from there, you can do both of those things. You can heal your past and you can guide yourself towards some kind of future. But it really only comes from fully embracing this moment in the present. Any questions or comments, please, please feel free. Yeah, we have some time. Hey. I had a question. If anybody, totally no, of course not. A good friend of mine is looking for a minyan in the Brooklyn that prays with Kavana, with mm. slowness, with uh, a little. That's not unrelated. Yeah, <laughs> that's beautiful. Are there any? I wish I knew of. <laughs> so. I love praying really slowly. Yeah. I have a question. We're always taught we're the chosen people, the chosen separate people. yourself from the so I think there's the balance there, right? The balance between having proper boundaries and also seeing yourself in other people. So let's say I'm in the psych unit. I have this every day. I'm in the psych unit and I, I feel so overcome with compassion for this girl who's depressed or this guy who's schizophrenic. And I say to myself, how do I, and I see myself in them. I see in my meditation that if I grew up in their exact scenario, I would be this girl that cut herself and that is suicidal. If I grew up in that guy's situation, I would be schizophrenic. I would be losing my mind. So how could I turn my back on them? But at the same time, at the same time as I could be infinitely loving and compassionate, I also can't get rid of boundaries and I can't let them dictate everything about our interactions and I can't let them throw tantrums control. and control everything about the interaction. So I have to balance my boundaries towards them with the love and compassion that I hold towards them as human beings who are really in a deep level myself. And I think it's the same thing with the whole world. Being a member of Am Yisrael doesn't mean we have a superiority complex. But it also doesn't mean that we should, you know, mix with the goyim in certain ways when it, in terms of, you know, intermarriage and things like that. Of course, we, we shouldn't do that. But it does mean at the same time that we're we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're supposed to help guide the world back towards mental and physical health in some way of, of keeping the, the, the values of the Abrahamic tradition and justice, righteousness, covenant. And, and eventually the oneness of all reality. And that doesn't, it's, you know, it's like that there's supposed to be zero superiority complex about that. We're not better than anybody else. We're a part of the world. We're of the world. But we're also a separate nation, just like all the other nations are separate from each other. At, uh, like, let's say there's some... Uh, oh, Thank you so much for coming. Ultra-Orthodox, Ultra-Orthodox, and they try to uh, even separate themselves from modern-Orthodox mm. people. In other words, like, let's say a school has vacation, the 
the regular Orthodox since January 20th. Mm -hmm. So the ultra Orthodox so uh, uh -huh. so i can't judge they don't mix. i can't judge the ways of the ultra orthodox but we'll, yeah so i first of all i think a lot of it comes from uh, you know, like first of all i always say i have to be compassionate let me take a compassionate understanding view of how these people became ultra orthodox so you look what happened to their ancestors they they lived in the ghettos they went through amazing amounts of pogroms and horrible tragedies that happened to their people. If that happened to me or to you, we would have also isolated. We would have also taken on what we see now as extreme practices. We would have also had some kind of cultural PTSD that would have made us want to isolate from the rest of the world. And at the same time, maybe those practices could sometimes be revealed to now be not so adaptive to the environment we're living in because they're not allowing some of these individuals to engage with the world. That's what, that's what I would say. It's the balance of those two things. Ready? All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Idea the men. Thanks. I'll see you later, Mike. Thanks. Have a later, good Mabruk again. Thank you, honey. Thanks. I hope to see you. I hope you can La make it. I don't know if I can make it because I got to work. I love you. Okay. I'll, see, I'll miss you there. Many more. Okay. I'll see you later, Mike. Lamak.